have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. There are things we have in our lives that did not exist a few years ago, and yet we can scarcely imagine life without them. I don't know what your house would be like if your washing machine went down, or if you no longer had running water, or the air conditioning went out on one of these boiling hot days, uh, on down to our smartphones. What would you do without it sometimes, you think? We're going to look at some truths today that perhaps you've given very little thought to. It may have had very little, perhaps maybe no place at all in your Christian life. Uh, I've thought about naming this sermon the text you didn't know you needed. If you're a Christian, you may have lived your whole Christian life without giving more than a few minutes thought about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I hope that this truth, though, new to some, will become indispensable to you. Follow along as we read, as I read, Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is written that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest who should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is... Uh, an annulment of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is in the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, and he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, 
He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins, then then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us help in stretching our minds and in giving ourselves uh, to a, a desire to know more of our Savior. Our Father, we pray that you would aid us in girding up the loins of our minds. Aid us, Father, in hearing and in speaking and in thinking and in receiving the truth. For we pray all of this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, I was uh, hearing a preacher at a conference, and, uh, and he had said that in his sermon preparation, he asked himself this question, and is this, what would be different in my faith if this passage I am studying did not exist? What would I be missing about God, or the nature of God, or my salvation, or my comfort, or my duty, if this passage wasn't there? What if Hebrews 7 wasn't in our Bibles? What if the writer to the Hebrews did what all the other writers of the New Testament do, and that is never mention Melchizedek and never mention the promise of Psalm 110 in verse 4. Now keep that in mind as we come now at long last to begin to unravel the significance of a promise that was made to God's people 3,000 years ago. Psalm 110, written roughly 3,000 years ago. Think of that. 3,000 years. That promise was made 2,000 years ago. That promise was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled not just for those living then, but fulfilled for our comfort as well. And we are reminded by such things that what God promises to bring to pass, God will bring it to pass. God did not forget a promise that he made in one verse, in one song. He was determined that it would be fulfilled. A thousand years before this passage was written to the Jewish Christians suffering in the first first century, the living God inspired the pen of the psalmist David to write the words of Psalm 110, one of the greatest and most significant messianic psalms, uh, one of the greatest psalms that is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. And that psalm reads this way. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and read through to verse 4. A psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Those words written by King David would have put into the hearts and minds of God's people from that day forward the reality that one day not only a king would arise from David's line, a king who would be David's son and yet David's lord, but that a new order of priest would come. Not after the order of Aaron, not after the order of the Levites, but that he would rise according to the order of a man named Melchizedek. It would have added to the hearts 
and minds of God's people from that day onward a righteous expectation, especially in light of the language, I have sworn and I will not relent. Brethren, if we didn't have the book of Hebrews, we might read our Bible and wonder, Lord, did you ever and how did you ever fulfill a promise? Because you swore and you would not relent that one day this high priest would come. Now, as we have seen, it was with the introduction of this truth earlier in the book that Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek that led to what we studied throughout chapter 6 and the end of chapter 5 and then all, uh, at least a good bit of chapter 6, a, a lengthy parenthesis or diversion concerning the troublesome spiritual state of some in the church. It was their inability to be able to wrestle with this truth that led the preacher to say, I have concerns about you. So I, I don't know that I want to say the same this morning, that as I read Hebrews 7, if you thought, I am totally lost, and I have no idea what this is saying, and I have no idea how this is relevant, well, I know a preacher 2,000 years ago would say, well, I'm worried about you. <laughs> have you become dull of hearing? Or are you perhaps even on the border of turning away from the faith, a, a condition from which you'll never escape. It wasn't response to people's response to this that that was said. Now he told them, though you have come to need milk and not solid food, God willing, we're going to get back to this. Well, he got back to it. And that's what we want to consider uh, this morning. So with all that behind us, I want to deal today with the person of Melchizedek, who he was and what his relevance to the person and work of Christ is, and, and then what does it mean for all of us here this morning? Now, I've been praying throughout the week and meditating throughout the week on how to present this in a way that's not just a theological lecture. Uh, in some ways, this is the kind of text you might say, well, this might lead, lead itself more to a, a Sunday school format where we could really interact and ask a lot of questions. I'm going to cover a lot of material, and we are going to be uh, looking at it uh, from several hundred feet in the air, not covering and uncovering every rock and leaf uh, this morning. But there are three things I want to bring out of the text this morning regarding uh, these truths and this passage first. I want to consider the name of Melchizedek. If you're taking notes, you can just write M or Mel, as I have down here, so I don't have to spell it every single time. Uh, the name of Melchizedek, the greatness of Melchizedek, and then thirdly, the superior priesthood of Melchizedek is what we want to consider. So first of all, the name of Melchizedek. Now, having said, Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek and said we're going to get back to it. And then having reminded them of it at the end of chapter 6, when he's speaking of the anchor to our soul, that anchor that is steadfast and sure, that enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now let's talk about this. Let's talk about the forever priest, because there was only one forever priest mentioned in the scriptures and if Jesus is to be the forever priest he needs to be after the order of Melchizedek all right the name of Melchizedek now as this chapter begins we are given a brief historical summation of when and where this old testament figure was introduced so who is this Melchizedek where did he come from why is he even mentioned why did David use his name at all well it's summarized in verse one for this melchizedek king of salem priest of the most high god met abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him now this is a reference to genesis chapter 14 verses 14 through 20 and you can turn back there and follow along or just simply listen as i read the context the historical context 
of Abraham. Now, there had been some who had captured uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, and uh, Abraham goes to war now uh, and bringing some with him, and there's a great victory made. Now, that's something of the context. Now, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedolomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, this is now where he's introduced, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now that's it. That's the entire historical narrative of Melchizedek. And as I stated, it would not be till a thousand years later that his name appears again in the scriptures and then another thousand years before he's mentioned again. The preacher in verse 1 reminds us, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And then he says this, words that have brought a lot of confusion and a lot of debate and a lot of different interpretations. Without father... Did you read of a father in, in Genesis 14? Who is his dad? Well, no, it's not given. Without mother. Did you read of a mother there? No, you didn't read about uh, his mother. Without genealogy. You don't know who his grandfather, great-grandfather, etc. don't know what tribe, don't know anything about him. Without genealogy having neither beginning of days, that is, we're not told when he was born, how old he was, nor end of life. There's no record of his dying. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, several assertions or truths are laid out here about this man for our consideration. And the first is that this man was a king and a priest. It's a rather unusual combination. Now we were reminded in our looking at the catechism that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. If you're going to come tonight, we're going to read uh, in our scripture reading Deuteronomy 18, which speaks of Jesus being a, a priest after the uh, type of Moses. But here is a man who was a king and a priest, a fitting type then of the Lord Jesus. He's king in a place called Salem, or Shalom. The city of Shalom, Yaru Shalom, is Jerusalem, which would become the capital of the nation of Israel in the future. Now he has a name, Melchizedek. Now not everybody knows what their name means. I mean, most of us have some idea about what it means, maker of bread or, you know, whatever uh, our name means. and doesn't always have any pronounced, uh, profound significance as to our bearing or, or who we are. But here's a man whose name means literally king of righteousness. That Melki is king and Sadek, Hebrew word for righteousness, and Melchizedek, king of righteousness. So he's king of 
peace, king of shalom. He is the king of righteousness. Now, this is the kind of thing that would have really excited a guy like John Bunyan. Uh, Bunyan is the writer of very obvious allegory and analogy. You know, so that when he wants to describe somebody who... uh, mucks about in the thing of the, of the world while well, he's he's muckraker or if, if he wants to describe a guy who talks too much what name should i give him well talkative that's a good name for that's a good name for somebody who talks too much evangelist that'll be the guy who tells people the good you know let's take a man whose name means king of righteousness and the king of peace a one who is a king and is a high priest and you say to yourself Who does that sound like? Who sounds like the king of righteousness? Who sounds like the king of priests? Who do I know who is a king? And who do I know who is a high priest? And a high priest without end. Who do I know who wasn't created? Who do I know in regard to his eternal essence has no beginning and has no end? Now, Jesus and his humanity, interestingly, has two rather lengthy genealogies given. And according to his humanity, we know his mother and his grandfather. We know some of his great-grandmothers. We know mothers. We know fathers in his human. But you ask the question... Who made the Son of God? Well, no one made the Son of God. And so let's find a figure. Let's find a person that you can look at and go, you know, if this is all we know, where does he come from? Who made him? Who created him? He seems to come out of nowhere. Or as one person says, to come out of evermore and go to evermore. Now we will deal with the tithes and the blessing in a moment. But I want us to see here something about the nature of this man and why this is is phrased in the way that it has. And again, that it's caused so much difficulty and difference of interpretation because some say, well, He has no beginning, he has no end, he has no father, he has no mother, he has no genealogy. As though then we have to consider that Melchizedek is perhaps an angelic figure. And some have said, well, he's, he's Michael the archangel. Or for some, that he is a pre-incarnate Christophany or theophany. He is God coming and appearing as a man temporarily and then passing off the scene. I don't think we need to say that. I think the answer to the question of who is Melchizedek is that Melchizedek is Melchizedek. But he finds significance. The writer wants to, because he's drawing out a pattern, because, listen, folks, you know, this chapter is not about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is useful as a type of Christ. He's not trying to get us fixated on Melchizedek. I think we could be guilty, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, and a message I listened to about Melchizedek, of, of thinking too much or too little about Melchizedek. But sometimes it's a bit too much, because the whole point of bringing this out is to bring us to the point where we recognize that therefore... Uh, that he is able to save to the uttermost. All of this is building to the declaration of how and why Jesus can save us the way that he does. Again, the purpose of this section and the purpose of the whole book is to be pointed to the superior glory of the Lord Jesus. And so the writer does, he'll take this passage and that passage and this truth and that truth and this allegory and this comparison and this type and that type to swell into the hearts of the readers the greatness of the glory of Jesus. Who was this man and why does he appear on the scene and then leave and never come back, as it were? Why is he described the way that he is? 
again, with certain key information given, king of righteousness, king of peace, and other information withheld. Because if you study the book of Genesis, who your father and mother are was very important. Genealogies may bore you. It may be your least favorite thing to do in the Bible is to read a genealogy. But they were very important in the fulfillment of the promises of God because the promises of God were fulfilled through bloodlines. And you had to be able to trace those things out to prove God is saying to them, look, I'm faithful to generation after generation after generation to keep my promise. I'm working out a plan. And so why does this man come where we know Abraham's father and we know others' fathers and mothers, but we don't know anything about Kim? Well, again, it's to point or to give us a picture of the Lord Jesus. There was once a man who appeared to Abram. He's not a Jew. He's not, in this sense, a part of the covenant community. But he knows and loves and serves the Almighty God, the one true and living God. And again, his name, the King of Righteousness. And he rules over a place called Peace. Now, what we are told is this, again, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Again, we have to keep in mind the purpose for which this is written. And it may sound strange, but his purpose, again, is not so much to deal with Melchizedek as to tell us about Jesus. And note here that the Holy Spirit does not say that he is Jesus. Note that it tells us he resembles. Resemblance is not does it mean the same thing? But he's like Jesus. That is, he is a type of Jesus. And isn't it interesting that this great man who did the great things that we will look at in a moment has such a limited biography? And all the questions you'd want to answer, where did he come from? Who was his father? And who was his mother? How old was he? And who were his people? And where did he come from? And what happened to him afterward? When did he die? And where is he buried? This is the sort of information we find repeatedly in Genesis. But we don't find it about Melchizedek, which makes him able in this way to be this wonderful figure and type of Christ. What was this man about? We don't know a lot of the answers. And why is this information withheld? Why didn't the Holy Spirit give that to us? Because God wanted to use him as an analogy or as an allegory. Here is a man who did these things, and it is as though he dropped from heaven and was taken up again. That's what it appears like. And the writer makes this case perfectly clear again. He's like, in this way, he's like the Son of God. Who better to illustrate a priest from outside the line of Aaron and the Levites, and one who by a certain argument appears to be eternal, than to describe the, the, the priesthood of Jesus in this way. All right, the second issue is the greatness of Melchizedek. And we go here, verses 4 through 10. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes. We'll see that again tonight in our reading in Deuteronomy 18 from the people according to the law, uh, that is, from their brethren, though they uh, have come from the loins of Abraham. And he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Consider how great a man this he was. And two main things are brought about in order to prove his greatness. And this greatness is seen in comparison to Abraham, preeminently, but also to the Levites. So what's the point of all? Is the point of this that, that Melchizedek is greater or that Jesus is greater than Abraham and greater than, Melchiz, greater than the Levites? I mean, this is 
Again, remember, if you get lost, pull up, remember where you're going. Now, for us who are Gentiles and who came to faith in Jesus without passing through Judaism, I don't know if any of you Gentiles went through a Judaistic phase first, where you became a Jew and were, if you were a male, got circumcised and joined a synagogue and then became a Christian. Most of us here did not pass through uh, that. That's not our story. And we may not be able then to feel the full weight of what is being said here. But you know how you might feel if somebody is, if you're, you know, you're like a, a big historian, American historian, and somebody says, this guy's greater than George Washington. You're like, oh, come on. Well, he's a better president than, you know, and he names, you know, whatever. You know, well, he, he, he should be on Mount Rushmore, not those turkeys that are on there. You know, somebody goes, well, calm down, you know, let's, let's give it some perspective. And, and for the Jews, tempted again to go back to a, not that there's any such thing truly as a Christless Judaism, but in their mind to go back to the safety of Judaism and to Abraham and to the Levites, it's going to remind them repeatedly that Jesus is the greater. Abraham is the great figure. He's the, he is, in many ways, the great religious figure of the world. Because the three great world uh, religions, monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all hold to Abraham as their, as their father in this sense. Our New Testament begins with a reference to Abraham. He's the father of the, fa- uh, of the faithful, the one through whom blessings would come upon the nations. And the Levites were the priests, the guardians of the worship of God, which was central to the lives of the people. Without the priests, no worship. Without the priests, no sacrifices. Therefore, no hope of reconciliation, no atonement. And, but what if there was one who was greater than them both? And he says, well, let me show you how Melchizedek was. Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes. And Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. And the writer makes an argument, which he states is beyond dispute, that the greater bless the lesser. Now, somebody might say, but don't we bless the Lord? Yes, we do bless the Lord. But when we bless the Lord, we are not adding anything to God. We are not giving anything to God other than the glory and honor due his name. When we say, brethren, let's bless God, it's very different than saying, brethren, let us ask God to bless us. The greater blesses the lesser. Bless here is by way of granting or giving help or promise. It is the richer giving to the poorer, we might say, or the stronger aiding the weaker. That is, that's the way of things. The strong aid the weak. The rich should give to the poorer. That's the way of things. That's just how that goes. And then we are told that he paid tithes to Melchizedek and in so doing showed that in this sense, the Levites also paid tithes. I said, you understand, I think the analogy, I hope it's fairly clear. It may, it may sound complex at first. Like, what is he getting at? Well, it's really rather simple. All right, so I'm going to give you a sci-fi analogy to help. So they have these movies, right, where you know, somebody goes back in time, and of course they're always told, don't alter anything, don't run into your former self. And so you know, whether it's a kid going back and meeting his parents or his grandparents or some machine going back to kill someone, well, what, what would happen if the past is altered? What does it do to those who are affected by the alteration of the past? So what if in this scenario somebody could go back in a time machine and kill, let's say, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Well, if you're doing the parallel in the movie and in the sci-fi, the guy goes back, and the moment he kills grandpa, suddenly I'm gone. Poof. I never existed. I never existed. Why? Because I was in the loins of that man. There was seed in him that produced a child, that produced a child, that produced a child, that produced a child, that produced me. And in order to get to me, then all of those needed to live long enough to be able to reproduce. The, the, the present is rooted in the past loins, in this sense, or the seed of the past. That, that's, that's the analogy. And so we would have been snapped out of existence. We belonged in them. 
And if they were making a movie, probably I would play my great-great-grandfather because they do that ridiculous thing uh, in those. And they'd look like you because you were in them, as it were. Well, Levi is Abraham's great-grandson. It's his great-grandson. Levi, in this sense, was in him. All, all, All who would come. Isaac was in Abraham when this happened. And Jacob was in Isaac. And Levi was in Jacob. And if you back it up, well, they were in Abraham. So that what Abraham did had an impact on those who would follow. And we, this is true in so many ways of life. What our ancestors did or did not do had an impact upon you. Where you were born, the circumstances of your birth, your early life, in many ways are shaped by those who came before. And so it is with Levi and the Levites. They were in Abraham's body because they, he had been in Jacob's body. And Jacob was in Isaac's body and Isaac was in Abraham's body. And so that all of them who flowed are the seed of Abraham, the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky begin with one man. They're in Abraham's body, so it could be argued that when Abraham authored, uh, offered tithes of this priesthood, of this, pre, of this priest outside the line that would come, the Levites did too. So the Levite, Levi, as it were, paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's the point he's making, and he'll drive it home, that if Jesus is a high priest after his order, then the Levites showed homage to him and not the other way around. Now, leaving the analogy behind, the preacher is going to show how Jesus is better than the Levites in regard to his priesthood. That brings us to the superior priesthood. Therefore, beginning at verse 11, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? That is, why was Psalm 110 written? Why Psalm 110 in verse 4, if perfection came through the Levites? If the, if the priesthood did all that it would do, there would have been no need. That promise would not have been exciting to have somebody greater than Abraham and greater than the Levites come. That another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, not from uh, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Kingdom, yes, priesthood, no. But if it is yet more, it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, something like that, according to the allegory, according to the analogy, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are priests forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. Remember, this hope we have is an anchor to our soul through which we draw near to God. That anchor, that hope is in the presence. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he, con- but because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, I've said we're going to talk here about the superior priesthood of Melchizedek. Really, what we're talking about here is the superior priesthood of Jesus. Because now it becomes abundantly clear that the writer wants to talk about Jesus and is using Melchizedek as a tool. Now, several things are brought out here. 
questions that need to be answered and dealt with. Why, why was there a need for a different kind of priest outside the, the Levites? In what way did the Levitical priesthood prove inadequate, right? We're asking this question. And then we need to consider what, what hope do we have that Jesus is outside of that priesthood? Why is there such a promise as we find in Psalm 110 again? Why did the Lord swear and not relent that he would give them not only a king, but a priest, and not just a superior Levite, not just a better than Aaron, but a whole different type of priest? Because Aaron and the Levitical priests also point to Christ. But their pointing to Christ is inadequate. To give the full dimension of the blessedness we have in Christ's high priesthood. The purpose from the human perspective was, the purpose of a priest from a human perspective was to intercede for the people, to represent them to God, and to offer sacrifices for sin. That's what the, that's what the Levites did. From the time that they originated under the law of Moses, until the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They were priests and high priests. Now I'm going to ask a question you can't really answer it. But I just want you to think about it. How many sacrifices did they offer? From the time of Moses to the time of the destruction of the temple. How many, can you? I, let's just. A lot? A whole lot? And how many of those sacrifices offered by men appointed by the law, brought about, strictly speaking, peace with God and a soul-satisfying, conscience-satisfying forgiveness of sins. How many were able to walk away from the temple and say, I know I'm forgiven because that priest went in and he offered a sacrifice, well, first for his own sins. But then one for me also. And I know and I have hope because that lamb came into the world and was born and died and represented me. Well, the scriptures indicate that none of them did. They knew it was promised and they knew that it pointed to something but there was no satisfaction with any of those priests performing any of those sacrifices over thousands of years. And how did these men become priests? What was their qualification? Because of who their dad was. So they became priests. And then their sons became priests and their sons became priests. Because they came from the right tribe. Or the right family in the tribe. Because there's not just the Levites, but there's the family of Aaron, who would be the high priest. Did any of them become priests because the Lord swore to them? Is that how they held their position? For the Jews then and now, a troublesome point here. How could Jesus come from the line of Judah according to his humanity, and yet be such a great high priest. Now again, we have argued we need a high priest. We need someone to go behind the veil. We need somebody to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat once and for all. But how can he go there if he doesn't have the right bloodline? Well, because God had promised a thousand years earlier that when this priest came, he would not be a Levite, but he would be like this enigmatic figure, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And God would swear to the king of righteousness and the king of priests that he would have a priesthood that would do what the Levites never did because through the law, no perfection or salvation came how could he be priest 
when he's not a Levite? Well, the answer is you should have expected that to be the case. It's not a problem. Jesus not being a Levite is not a problem. It's according to promise. On the basis of Psalm 110, you ask somebody, would there be a son of David who would be David's son and David's Lord from David and yet greater than David? Yes. Yes, I believe one day that man will come. Then you should also have anticipated that God would bring a great and final high priest, not from Levi, not from the law, but by oath and by promise. There is a sense. I want to be careful how I say this, but we need to understand this in the whole frame of redemption. That the Levites were appointed to frustration and to failure. What do we got to do today? We got to offer another sacrifice. And what about on the Day of Atonement? I'll do it this year, and then the next year we'll do it again, and then the next year we'll do it again, and then the next year we'll do it again, and then my son will do it until he can't do it, and then his sons will do it till they can't do it, and on and on we will go. For all of them, even the best of them, their priesthood was limited not only by their sin, but by their humanity. In fact, they didn't end their priesthood when they died. They had to retire from being priests when they were 50. And some have speculated that that might have something to do with their diminishing eyesight. You had to do things like inspect for leprosy or mold or all those things and make pronouncements. And they didn't have glasses back then. They didn't have bifocals and trifocals and all, all of those kinds of things. If you got to an age, you can't see it anymore. You can't be priest anymore. So they were limited by their sin, limited by their humanity, limited in their term of office. But what if God promised another, a greater, a superior, who would have the power of an endless life? One who did not need to offer, as we will see later, a sacrifice for his own sins. And what if when this one died, as it were, he went behind the veil... And then tore the veil. He went into the true presence in heaven. And when he did, God tore the veil from top to bottom in the temple. All right, so we said in the Sunday school, it's the job of the preacher to give the what and the so what. So the question might be, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, let me ask you this. Have any of you sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Do any of you believe that the wages of sin is death? Do any of you believe that due to the fact that God is holy, 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 that part of his goodness and holiness is that he must punish sin? Do you believe that you must one day stand before him and give an account to him For all you've done and all you've said and all that you have thought. And do you believe that in your life you have broken God's law? Not just at one point, but in many points. But the Bible says if you've only done it in one, you've broken them all. Do any of you feel a need that if all of that is true, that you want someone to come and stand between you and God? One whom God has appointed... One to whom God swore with an oath and would not relent. One who must come from Judah in order to be king. And who must have a different bloodline in order to be a priest. Do you believe that you need somebody to intercede for you? You see, what if you had in the Old Testament, you had a priest that was kind of your priest, who's kind of your guy. And you had a special sense that he was sympathetic with you and he was merciful and he understood and you came with your your dove or your goat or your lamb and you said, I've blown it, I've sinned again. And he says, I understand, I've just done the very thing. And then the day comes and you come to the temple and you find out, well, he retired or he died. 
And you say, well, who's going to pray for me? Who's sympathetic enough to intercede with me, for me? Who understands my weaknesses and sympathizes? Who is a compassionate and a merciful one who will live not only today and not just for my life, but the whole of my life and the whole of my eternity? See, my friend, you need a high priest because judgment day is coming. You need a high priest because you have a soul. You need a high priest because you've sinned. And you need somebody to cover your sin by his blood and to gift you with the gift of his righteousness. And you need somebody who always lives. Somebody who prayed for Paul. And he prayed for Augustine. And he prayed for Calvin and for Luther. And he prayed for you if you're a Christian, for your grandparents, maybe your Christian grandparents and your parents who are now in glory. And he'll be able to pray for your children and your grandchildren after you're gone. Who is praying that your faith will not fail. And the answer to the question, why am I still in the way? Why haven't I gone back to the world? Why haven't my sins overwhelmed me? Why haven't I been crushed with my trial? Why hasn't the darkness of providence overwhelmed my soul to the point where I turn my back and turn away from the living God? And the answer is not because you have good theology. And the answer is not just because you're part of a good church and you have brothers and sisters who support you. And the answer is not just that you have people in your life who love you and pray for you. It's because there is a high priest who has the power of an endless life. Without genealogy, without father, without mother, an uncreated being, an eternal son of the living God who became man and sits at the father's right hand and sees you in your weakness and prays that your faith will not fail who covers all your transgressions with his sin, or with his blood, so that you will not stand on the last day and be counted guilty. And he will have brought safely home all that the Father gave to him. So what's the significance? Why do I need a king of righteousness and a king of peace? Why do I need a priest who's able to do what all the Levitical priests... Brethren, if your hope was tied to the Levitical priesthood, there hadn't been one in 2,000 years. And if your hope was he'd offer a bull or a goat or a lamb, and been one offered for 2,000 years, coming up in, a, in, 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 in about 40 years, will mark the 2,000th anniversary of the last sacrifice. But we celebrate the final sacrifice. And it is no troublesome thing for us Because the Bible teaches without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You imagine what it would be like to say there's no blood, there's no blood, there's no blood. And for us to say a final sacrifice was offered by a priest greater than the Levitical priesthood, a sacrifice greater than the one of the high priest, going behind the veil, the veil torn, because one greater than Abraham, greater than David, greater than Aaron, and greater than Melchizedek has come. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on these things. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this revelation of the greatness of your son. And Lord, we pray that we would be drawn afresh to confidence in him. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that where we are weak, he is strong. We thank you that he ever lives to intercede for us. And we pray these things in his matchless and holy name. Amen. Amen.